Well, if you want to take your Bibles out a while, we are a starting text that we've been looking at uh, off and on last number of weeks, Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Late last summer, I got a phone call one day. I was here at the office, and it was a relative of mine who's the president of family business that my father was involved in all his life. And he said, Keith, he said, I have a Korean man in front of me that um, says that we have uh, an ancestor who was a missionary to Korea. And he wants to have as many family members come here today so that he can thank. I'm looking around my desk. I said, Doug, that's not going to happen. I can't just drop what I'm doing and show up. He goes, okay. He said, I, I didn't think anybody's going to be able to do this. But we hung up. That was the end of the story. Until about two months ago, and I was in his office again. We were talking about some other things, and we circled back around to this man had shown up uh, at, his, at the business that day. And he said, you know, after he left, he sent me about four or five emails full of pictures of this. Uh, turns out to be my, my great-great-uncle. Pictures of him. He's buried in Korea. They have a shrine, almost a shrine for him. They celebrate his, uh, his ministry on the day of his death, anniversary of his death every year. And I said, well, send me what you have. I might be interested in looking at it someday. And so he sent it to me and I looked at a couple of things. There was a picture of him in there and uh, kind of thought, well, I'll, someday that I have nothing to do, I'll look at the rest of this. About two weeks later, I got an email from a kind of broken English from a woman in Korea. And she says, I understand that you are a relative of uh, Dr. Eli Landis. And um, she said, I understand you're a pastor. I got your name and address from somebody in Korea. She rattled off, sorry, in Virginia, rattled off another Korean name. And she said, we're having, we're coming to the U.S. um, in April. We're having a memorial service to commemorate uh, Dr. Landis's life at Mellinger's Mennonite Cemetery. Because even though he's buried over there, there's a memorial stone up here for him. And she said, would you be willing to have a, a, a sermon for that celebration? And I thought, this is just bizarre. Never heard of this guy. I don't know many of my ancestors, and um, that's probably my problem. But anyway, I thought, I don't really know if I want to get involved in this. I went home, and I started opening all these attachments that Doug had sent to me, and I was blown away by this guy. This was the late 1800s, and uh, went to Korea right after Korea opened up missionaries. And uh, so they have, uh, they have his letters and his writings um, preserved in a, a Christian college over there. And they, like I say, they have this kind of memorial each year. And the more I looked at this stuff, the more intrigued I got. So I wrote her back and said, yeah, I'll, I'll do that. And so on April 17th, we had a, a little service uh, here at Keystone. It was supposed to be at Mellinger's, but it was a cold, windy day. So we had it down here in Club 56, and there were, I think, nine members of my family, extended family, and then five Koreans, three Korean-Americans, including a pastor from Philadelphia, and two Koreans from South Korea. And as that woman stood up, before we got into the service, she was talking about uh, Dr. Landis, and she's talking about him coming to Korea and uh, being a missionary, sharing the good news of the Korean people, and she started to cry. And I thought, how can this be? 120 years later, she's remembering somebody she never knew personally. But because of the gospel's impact in her country, it moved her deeply. 
In my research, I discovered some interesting facts. So Dr. Landis was one of six children, never went, uh, none of the other children went to college. He went to Millersville University in 1885. He went to the University of Penn Medical School to study to be a doctor. And he was there from 85 to 88. Now during that time, something very significant was happening in America. In 1886, D.L. Moody had a Bible conference at Mount Hermon in Massachusetts. It was a month-long Bible conference. As part of that conference, a, a student at Princeton University named Robert Wilder, who had started the Foreign Missionary Society at Princeton, organized to have Dr. A.T. Pearson, who was a prominent Bible teacher and missions mobilizer, to come to that conference that D.L. was speaking at and speak on missions. And there were young men from all across the United States from college campuses that came to that conference. They were from YMCA chapters, the Young Men's Christian Association, which back then was a lot like InterVarsity and Navigators. It was an on-campus ministry. And Dr. Pearson challenged the students that month to reach the world in their generation. And the following year, Robert Wilder and a friend fanned out all across the United States going from college campus to college campus, challenging students, Christian students, to do that, to reach the world in their generation. And by 1888, the year that my great-great-uncle graduated from medical school, they had 5,000 students from across the U.S. who had signed a pledge saying, I purpose if God permit, to become a foreign missionary. And this was the beginnings of the student volunteer movement, which eventually deployed 20,000 missionaries around the world for the cause of Jesus Christ. And I can't prove it based on the records that we have, but I suspect that Dr. Eli Bar Landis was influenced while he was on the college campus at U of Penn for this purpose. And he ended up, he grew up in a Mennonite home. He ended up being baptized in Episcopalian church in Philadelphia and went to eventually work at an Episcopalian convalescent home in New York. And there he met a priest coming from England, heading to Korea, who was trying to raise the awareness of the need of Korea for priests and doctors to come. And in 1890, Dr. Landis sailed for Korea. And he was there, he ministered, he became, uh, became as much like a Korean as he could. He dressed like them. He, he, he was very skilled in languages. He learned not only Korean, but Chinese and some Japanese as well. Actually taught language school. And then during the days, he would minister to the people. He, he met uh, with thousands of Koreans, treated thousands of Koreans during the time. And this was a little town that was only about 5,000 then. It's about 3 million now. And the day came when a a prostitute came and brought her son to him and said, Dr. Landis, would you take him in? I can't can't raise him. And he said, okay. And he named him Barnabas. And that was the beginning of boy after boy after boy that was brought by family members saying, I I can't take care of my son. And soon he had a little orphanage. And their boys were spilling out of this apartment and they decided they needed to build a house. And he asked permission of the mission if he could build a house where the Koreans were instead of where the Westerners were. And that became his downfall. They think he got um, that the water he was drinking right across the street from where he built the house was um, uh, fetid and he ended up dying, they think perhaps of cholera at the young age of 32. And as I read these stories, I'm thinking about the impact of the life of not one, but ultimately there were were many who came to Korea to share the good news. And actually the gospel got to Korea through Koreans initially, 
but it was, it was small. And after the doors opened to um, Protestant missionaries in 1885, uh, today, over a quarter of the 51 million South Koreans professing Christians. Today, Korea is second only behind the United States in the number of missionaries get sent out to the world. And the number of Korean missionaries doubled from about 2007 to 2017, from about 14,000 missionaries to today almost 28,000 missionaries. And of the 195 countries in the, in the world, Korean missionaries serve in 170 of them. Now, why do I share this story with you? Because when we think about one missionary, we think, ah, doesn't do much. But one missionary combined with another missionary and another missionary and the kinds of money that backs those missionaries, but even more importantly, the prayers that backs those missionaries, you can change a nation. You can change a nation. So we've been talking these last number of weeks about the mission of God. The first week we talked about God being a missionary God. And we looked at Isaiah 45 verse 23 where God says the time is coming where every knee will bow and every tongue will declare allegiance to him. We summed that up by saying God's mission in the world is to see everyone become a worshiper. To see all people be worshipers of the one true and living God. And then he sent his one and only son as the ultimate missionary here to planet earth. He crossed boundaries the likes of which no missionaries today will ever cross. Boundaries of geography, boundaries of culture, boundaries of language. And he came here to do what he had to do, bear our sins on a cross, died, buried, raised back to life. And then he sat his disciples down and he said to them in John 20, 21, as the father has sent me, so I am what? Sending you. And so now the mission has come to us. The mission has come to every person here who says, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. I not only believe in Jesus Christ, I, I'm here to serve him. It's not just belief stuff. What does James say? Even the demons believe, right? And tremble. Followers of Jesus Christ. We have been called to be on mission. And last week we talked about being on mission locally. Today we want to talk about being on God's mission globally. And before we look at the scripture, let's just ask God for his help. Father, we love you. So grateful for what Jesus has done for us. We don't have many crosses in the front of our building like some do, but we are reminded every moment of every day of the cross of Jesus Christ because it is through his blood that our sins have been taken away, the blood that he shed on that cross, and that we have hope in a future because of that. We have been changed from children of wrath to children of God. We have been cha changed as, from people who were condemned to people who are blessed. We've been changed from, from people who stood as your adversaries who are, now stand in your presence as much-loved children of the living God. And it doesn't, doesn't matter that we continue to mess up. It doesn't, doesn't matter that we stumble day in and day out because your grace is for, sufficient for your power is made perfect in our weakness so that the glory might go to you and not to us. But you have left us with a mission. And this morning... I plead with you by the power of the Holy Spirit that you would speak to us in a way that captures our imagination, 
captures our hearts, captures our attentions for your glory and for the advance of this gospel that we love so much. The lives people have yet to hear. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Acts chapter 1, verse 8. We have gone back to this time and time again. Right before Jesus went back to his father, he says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you will be my witnesses, telling people about me everywhere in Jerusalem, throughout Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And don't miss the link there between the first sentence and the second sentence in that verse. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you might ask, just listening to that, power for what? This summer we're going to do a series on the Holy Spirit and there's all kinds of things that the Holy Spirit does in and through us. But fundamentally, the following sentence explains the Holy Spirit's preeminent work in us. And that is to use us as vehicles, as vessels of reconciliation for others. He gave us the power of the Holy Spirit in part that we would be able to be his witnesses telling people about him everywhere. Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria and the ends of the earth. Now, if you go from Acts chapter 1 to Acts chapter 8, there's a span of four years there. You cannot find work being done in Judea, in Samaria, on the ends of the earth. You find a lot of work being done in Jerusalem, as we talked about the first Sunday. You go from Acts 1 to Acts 2, and all of a sudden, boom, 3,000 converts. You go two more chapters, boom, we're up to maybe 10,000, 12,000 people, followers of Jesus now. Two more chapters, the number's greatly increasing, perhaps 20,000 Christians. In Jerusalem, though, you get to chapter 8, we looked at the other Sunday, and now things start to burst wide open. So let's go there again and just show you Acts chapter 8. I want to make the argument that because Acts 1.8 didn't happen, Acts 8.1 did. Because Acts 1.8, because the people of God were failing to f- fulfill Acts 1.8, Acts 8.1 came about. Second sentence in that verse, a great wave of persecution began that day sweeping over the church in Jerusalem and all the believers, except the church leaders, were scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. And verse 4 says that those believers who were scattered preached the good news about Jesus wherever they went. When Acts 1-8 doesn't happen, God finds a way to make Acts 8-1 happen. There was no work in Judea, no work in Samaria, no work in Carthage, India, Gaul, Spain at that point. And my first point this morning is the scope of Jesus' mission is to all people. The scope of Jesus' mission is to all people. We never have the opportunity to kind of sit and rest on our laurels and say, we're doing a good work here. I mean, the early church was doing a great work in Jerusalem. And Jesus is like, that's not what I told you. Jerusalem and. You should be doing work in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the ends of the world. We should be doing work in paradise and Pennsylvania and the United States and the ends of the earth. And the idea was never for, Jesus was never saying, look, when you get done with Jerusalem, when everybody in Jerusalem knows Jesus, 
Then you could pack your suitcases and move out to Judea and Samaria and the ends. No, no, no. You, you work in Jerusalem and the church of Jesus Christ is also supposed to work in Judea and also supposed to work in Samaria and also supposed to work in the ends of the earth. Scope of Jesus' mission is all people. He loves all people. You say, well, we, we've got a lot of work to do here. I've heard that countless times from believers over the years. We've got a lot of work to do here. And all you can say is, amen, but. Always a lot of work to do here, amen, but. That's not the end of the story. Scope of Jesus' mission is to all people. Secondly, the strategy of Jesus' mission is to unreached first. Now we're in Acts chapter 13, first few verses. Acts 13. So there's four years between Acts 1 and Acts 8. There's 16 years between Acts 1 and Acts 13. Verse 1. Among the prophets and teachers of the church at Antioch of Syria were Barnabas, Simeon, called the black man, Lucius from Cyrene, Menaean, who was the childhood companion of King Herod Antipas, and Saul. Of course, Saul was the man who will eventually have his name changed to Paul the Apostle. One day as these men were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, dedicate Barnabas and Saul for the special work to which I have called them. And so after more fasting and prayer, because they want to get it right, the men laid their hands on these two and sent them on their way. We don't know where they're going at this point. Verse 4. So Barnabas and Saul were sent out by the Holy Spirit. They went down to the seaport of Seleucia and then sailed for the island of Cyprus. There in the town of Salamis, they went to the Jewish synagogues and preached the word of God. John Mark was with them as their assistant. And afterward, they traveled from town to town across the entire island until they finally reached Paphos, where they met a Jewish sorcerer, a false prophet named Bar-Jesus. Now, by this time, the church was in Judea. They were in Samaria. And there were believers who had been scattered to Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch in this great persecution in Acts chapter Eight. But as of this point, Athens is still unreached. Rome is still unreached. Berea is still unreached. Crete is still unreached. Corinth, to say nothing, Africa and Asia and Europe and India, as of yet unreached. Now, this is when I have the conversation with people about the unreached, one of the things that uh, we initially talk about. If, if, if we say a person is unreached, does that simply mean that they do not yet know the gospel or that they have never yet heard the gospel? Because if that's the criteria, we have unreached yet here in America. And yet, by and large, we would say, no, we don't really have unreached people here. That, that's, that's a generalization. It's not quite precisely true. But in general, we don't. Why? Because we have Bibles, because we have churches, because people have neighbors that know Jesus Christ. On and on. Watch this video. Maybe give you some more clarity on what it means to be unreached. What is a UPG? UPG stands for Unreached People Group. But to understand what that means, we need to first talk about people groups. When Jesus told his followers, go and make disciples of all nations, the Greek words he used were ta ethne, meaning all ethnic groups or people groups. So what is a people group? A people group is basically a group of individuals that have a common sense of history, language, beliefs, and identity. 
It is pretty much a group of people that considers us, us, and everyone else, them. While there are about 196 countries in the world today, there are over 16,000 distinct people groups. Let's look at Pakistan as an example. That is one nation going by our English word, but ethnically Pakistan has over 400 distinct nations, or people groups, within its borders. Around 7,000 of those 16,000 total people groups are considered UPGs, or unreached people groups. A group is considered unreached if less than 2% of their population is evangelical Christian. That is, it has too few true believers to evangelize and disciple the rest of the people group. Almost 3 billion people fall into this category. Over 3,000 of those 7,000 unreached people groups are considered UUPGs, or unengaged unreached people groups. These people groups have no churches, no believers, no missionaries, and no one actively focused on engaging them. 95% of all unreached people groups are located in the part of the world between 10 degrees latitude and 40 degrees latitude stretching from North Africa to Southeast Asia. We call this the 1040 window. It's in the 1040 window that most of the major non-Christian religions hold sway. Collectively, they are known as the Thumb People, tribal, Hindu, unreligious, including many Chinese, Muslim, and Buddhist. Jesus said that the gospel of the kingdom would be preached as a testimony to Ta Ethne, all people groups, and then the end would come. Less than 3% of our total cross-cultural missionary force is working with unreached people groups. We must go to the unreached. At the same time, it's estimated that over 350 unreached people groups are living in the United States today as immigrants, refugees, and international students. We must welcome the unreached. Christ commands us to make disciples of all nations. Jesus is alive. His mission for us is clear, yet the task stands incomplete. Together, we can change that. Now this video has a, is dated a, a number of years old and the numbers continue to shift and change. And so about five years ago, we would say about 2.8 billion people have never heard the gospel. They don't have anyone near enough to them to share the gospel. They don't have any uh, uh, believers in their people group. They don't, they don't have the stuff of accepting Christianity. That number has gone up. It's now about 3.15 billion, if you can wrap your head around that number. We have 7.5 billion people in the world, and 3.15% of them, uh, 3.15 billion have never heard a gospel story, they've never read a Bible, they've never even met a Christian. Do you know 86% of the world's Muslims, get this, the second largest religious group in the world, Muslims, 86% of the world's Muslims have never even met one Christian. Not just not heard the gospel. They've not even met so much as one Christian. There was a mission mobilizer from the last century who said something that when I came across this a number of years back, I, I was haunted by it, still am. Oswald J. Smith, he was a pastor. He wanted to go to the mission field, but health um, problems prohibited it. And he ended up being a great mobilizer during the 20th century. And he said, no one has the right to hear the gospel twice while there remains someone who has not heard it once. Think about that. 
No one has the right to hear the gospel twice while there remains someone, let alone 3.15 billion, who has not heard it even once. I've shared with people as I share that um, kind of spelling out some of our philosophy or keystone regarding missions, I said, I don't agree with the letter of that statement, but I agree with the spirit of it. When we have 6,900 people groups yet unreached around the world, we need to move the unreached peoples of the world to the front of the line. We have a philosophy here at Keystone, have developed a philosophy when it comes to mission. So when people contact us and say, would you help, would your church be willing to help support me as I go do my mission here, there, or everywhere? I'll tell them we have two philosophies when it comes to mission at Keystone. The first one has to do with people who are part of our church that God raises up to go into mission work. If God raises you up out of Keystone, I don't care whether you're going to Toledo or Toronto or Timbuktu. Uh, if he's called you and we validate your call and you're going with a reputable mission organization, um, we're going to get behind you. We're going to support you in a significant way financially and we're going to get behind you uh, when it comes to prayer. Uh, if, on the other hand, you are from outside of our church and you're asking for our support, we're only going to support you if you're going in a church planning context, in an evangelism context, to unreached people group, to Muslims, to Buddhists, to Hindus, or working with international students here in the U.S. Because a number of years back, we looked at the missionaries we were supporting, and we were looking at how many people we were supporting in support roles. We didn't have anybody in evangelism. We didn't have anybody in church planting. Um, we, looked at, we looked at what people were doing. We looked at where they were doing it. And we said, you know, going forward, we're going to, we're going to focus on this, and we're going to um, put our dollars and our energy and our support behind this kind of work. Not because those other works don't matter, but when you think about this statistic, all of, the, of all the missionaries working around the world, there's 400,000 some Protestant missionaries working in the world. Of those 400,000, 3% are working with the unreached people groups of the world. 3%. That means that most of the missionaries, the vast majority of the missionaries are working in places where they are already reached as doesn't mean that they're, everybody's a Christian. But they're reached in terms they have some scriptures. They have, they have churches that have begun. They, they, they have believers that are working to evangelize their own people. And the ten, listen, the tendency of all of us is to kind of just stay where we are. I mean, all right, think about it. You guys who like sports and you have a lazy boy chair, when the game is over, do you feel like moving? I mean, seriously, do you feel like moving? That's not a rhetorical question. Yes or no? It's okay to say no. That's exactly how I feel. The game's over. Oh, must I get up? And the same can be true in this spiritual endeavor, this mission that God has placed, placed us, put us on. We go a place and we get things established and there's always so much more work to be done there. But what about those who are in total darkness? There's nobody turning the light on for them. Nobody. And so we want to move the unreached people groups to the front of the line. Why is that? Turn to Matthew chapter 24, verse 14. Matthew 24, verse 14. <clears throat> 
Jesus says, and the good news about the kingdom will be preached throughout the whole world so that all nations, or that's ta-ethne, see that from the video, ta-ethne, all, all ethnic groups, all people groups will hear it and then the end will come. The good news about the kingdom will be preached throughout the whole world so that all people groups will hear it and then the end will come. This is my final point. The sign of Jesus' return is mission accomplished. That doesn't mean that every person in every people group around the world will hear the gospel, but it means that every people group will be touched by the gospel. Every people group will have someone conveying this to them. The sign of Jesus' return is mission accomplished. This is why the early apostles did what they did. You think about this in the year, in the years from 2000, uh, I'm sorry, from uh, in the first century. So Jesus dies roughly uh, AD 30. And from then until probably about uh, AD 100, we're not sure exactly, late first century, the apostle John died. He was the last apostle to die. And he was the only apostle who wasn't murdered for his faith. And before all of those disciples, James, Peter, Philip, before, before they were all killed for their faith, they reached places like this. Think about it. Bulgaria, Croatia, Greece, Spain, India, Ethiopia, Carthage, Rome, Pakistan. You didn't know all this, did you? Turkey, Afghanistan, Iraq, Iran. The early apostles reached all those places. And this was back before jets. This was back before you could get places quickly. So everything you're going to do is by ship, by boat, or by foot. And they covered that much territory. Why? There was plenty of work to be done where they were at. But they understood this call to go to those who had yet to be reached with the good news of Jesus. And they were willing to put the miles on their shoes and they were willing to lay down their lives for that cause. Jesus' return is delayed until mission accomplished. We just wrap up here. We must, John Stott said, we must be global Christians with a global vision because our God is a global God. We must be global Christians with a global vision because our God is a global God. My great, great uncle is buried in Korea in what is called the foreigner's cemetery. The foreigner's cemetery. If you were to be asked, uh, where are you a citizen of? Assuming all of you would say United States. What are you a, where are you a resident? Lancaster County. This is a place of home for us. This, we have this sense of, this is where my roots are. This is where I love to be. I, I, I love to be here. It's interesting when I talk to some of our missionaries and we have some of our missionaries here this morning. I, what happened to my brother and sister? Where are the Zooks at? They still here? Ah, oh, they must be in Sunday school downstairs. We have our um, uh, Scott and Melissa Zook are here. They're home from Tanzania. They came home for family emergency. Um, but I, I think about people like them. When I talk to them, they come home and I, I'll say something boneheaded like, is it good to be home? And they're like, this isn't home for us anymore. Uh, Tanzania's our home, or Japan's our home, or Morocco's our home, or Indonesia's our home, Czech Republic's our home. 
And, when, and, and, and yet they feel like they're, they're, they're standing like this. They're bridging the gap. Listen to this verse in 1 Peter, uh, chapter 2, verse 11. Peter says, dear friends, I warn you as I warn you, he's talking to Christians, so this would be to us. I warn you as temporary residents and foreigners to keep away from worldly desires that wage war against your very souls. We're foreigners. If we leave the United States to go to another country, to another people group, we're foreigners to them. But the reason that we go to them is because we have already established that we're a foreigner even here. That our citizenship is where? In heaven. We're, we're just... We're just passing through here. We're just pilgrims here. And so whether we're a pilgrim in the United States or we're a pilgrim in Korea or we're a pilgrim in the Czech Republic or Pakistan or Afghanistan or Yemen, we're, we're, we're on call for God to use us wherever it is that he wants to use us. John Piper said something that I think is a challenge for all of us. When it comes to God's global mission, we have three choices. And only three. There's not a fourth. We can either go or we can send our money and our prayers or we can disobey. That there is no fourth option. We are either a goer or we're a sender or we're disobedient. This fall, Lord willing, uh, I'm going to go with several other of our leaders of our church to Arizona for several days to sit down with a mission organization to strategize and plot about how we can put together a team of people from Keystone to go into a Muslim context somewhere in the world as career missionaries. In other words, everybody that goes on that team, whether it be four or six or eight, would be raised up out of Keystone to go into a Muslim context and we would be their anchor. We would be the one who holds the ropes for them. We would be the one who would be the chief financial support. We'd be the chief prayer support. And I wonder if some of you might not start praying even now. God, if that comes to pass, would you want me to be part of that team? Might be that we end up in Pakistan. It might be that we end up in Morocco. It might be that we end up in Indonesia or in Yemen. Would you want me, God, to be part of that? Or go someplace else? That's the first application point are you called to go and then secondly if I'm not called to go that means that I am a sender how can I be a better sender we talk about this every time our missionaries come here just to remind folks we encourage you to partner with at least one and maybe two of our missionaries partner personally I understand when you give money to the Keystone budget that you give money towards our missionaries we have uh, over a quarter of a million dollars that goes out every year to missionaries and mission-related things, local partners as well. And I understand that your money uh, serves that purpose, but we want you to get specifically involved with somebody that you're interested in, the particular work that they're doing, particular part of the work, world where they're serving. Connect with them so that you're getting their missionary updates on a regular basis. You're finding out what their needs are right now. I mean, they send out emails sometimes say, please pray right now. We're having this happen in the next two hours. And you can be part of that can be part of impacting ministry on the other side of the world through prayer, uh, another, uh, through giving and through praying. Um, another thing that I encourage you, obviously, is prayer. 
And not just prayer for your missionary, but how can you pray that the Lord would open up uh, hope for these unreached people groups? And we have a resource for you out in the lobby today. I hope you'll pick up. It's called Pray for the 31 Prayer Guide. Uh, the language in the world of missions is constantly evolving. One of the, one of the new terms, just very recent, is called the um, frontier, uh, the frontier unreached people groups, frontier people groups, there we go. And the frontier people groups are the largest unreached people groups in all the world. And there's 31 of them listed here for you to pray for. And inside the, the digest is stories about these people groups. There's pictures, there's maps and so forth. Wonderful guide for you to use with your families uh, at night when you cry out to the Lord for uh, people around the world. Uh, you can also download on my smartphone, I have the Joshua Project app. Every day it will pull up a particular unreached people group that you can pray for. There's a picture there, there's maps, there's uh, prayer guides and so forth. Uh, you, can do, uh, you can go to operationworld.org and again get a, an app that you can have in your smartphone or you can get a, the book Operation World which has all the nations of the world and ways that you can pray specifically for people group, uh, groups in each nation. If you believe in prayer, this is one of the greatest ways that you can open up the doors of another country, of another uh, people group and maybe someday somebody's going to come to you and say thank you for being instrumental in seeing the gospel come to our nation. Father, we pray for that outpouring of grace. Uh, we, th we think sometimes when we look at the problems in the world that it's truly the end is near. And perhaps it is. Perhaps Jesus is at the threshold of heaven waiting to come back. And yet what must be done is all people groups of the world need to hear the good news of Jesus. I pray for us as a church, Father, that we might be engaged in greater and greater measure to see the gospel come to the ends of the earth, to those people who don't dress like us, who don't talk like us, who don't think like us, who don't understand like us, and yet whom you love so much. May you deepen the love in our hearts for both you and them so that we might be engaged in greater and greater measure until Jesus comes back. We pray in his name.